Hi everyone, it's Denise Mills here. Welcome to the Shift Podcast. In today's episode, I'm chatting with Ebony Landwehr. Ebony lives in Perth. She's 37 years old and she's currently doing her PhD in clinical psychology and her master's. She also trains for a half marathon just for fun. And anyway, today we're chatting mainly about the fact that she was diagnosed with ADHD as an adult in January this year. So her life before the diagnosis and her life after has shifted a fair bit. Not perfect, but certainly improving. So that's what we chat about. We chat about the misconceptions around ADHD, especially for young girls. They're not always the same um, as, as young boys with ADHD. So she lived a long time, uh, you know, well, 37 years isn't a long time, but you know what I mean. She lived a long time without um, being diagnosed. So just have that knowledge has um, made a huge difference in itself. We also talk a little bit about um, eating disorders as well. So just a heads up in case anyone finds that triggering and i think that's it she's um clever cookie very interesting i learnt a lot i hope you enjoy it hi ebony thanks so much for joining me today i know you're very busy at the moment doing your masters and your phd as well and you're training for is it a half marathon yes yes just yeah. a half marathon <laughs> yes so you've got your work cut out for you um one of the things that i really want to talk to you about today is I know that it's a fairly recent thing that you got diagnosed with ADHD as an adult and you're only um, in your mid-30s now. Um, I hope you don't mind me saying that. No, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot of interesting stuff going on and I know that you've told me previously that getting diagnosed with ADHD has actually helped you quite a bit and I'd really love to come back around to that. But first I want to start with your childhood. What... I mean, I imagine that you've been diagnosed with ADHD now that, um, you know, you've probably had some symptoms that were unrecognised for quite a long time. So, yeah, I'd be really interested to know what um, growing up looked like for you. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. This is a great opportunity to procrastinate from my PhD. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I guess there's like three kind of distinct parts to growing up. You've got like your early childhood and then primary school and then high school. And those three areas were quite different for me. So when I was a toddler, um, by all accounts from my mum, I was just an absolute nightmare. So never slept, always getting into things, used to draw on the walls, draw on the sheets. They had to confiscate all the stationery from me because I couldn't be trusted. I was always doing something, getting into something, just really naughty. Um, so I think that was probably a good key indication that something was up there. And then my social anxiety kind of kicked in very early. So the first time I remember having social anxiety, having an actual like attack of it, I was six. Mm. And so I think because that kicked in so early, that kind of um, masked a lot of my behaviours and they became very internalised because I just didn't want to draw attention to myself. And that kind of continued all through high school as well. But then the, um, the problems with my academic functioning became quite apparent because I went from being like top of the class to kind of middle and then I dropped out of high school in year 11. 
So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so I guess I could go into detail in any kind of area, like any of those areas. Um, but there was there were indications that fun- like my functioning was not good, but it was quite often hidden. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think... I don't think it was on the radar for anyone that I had ADHD at all. Yeah, okay. So is that social anxiety that ended up um, causing you to, to well, is that the reason why you did, decided to drop out of school because of the social anxiety? The reason I dropped out of school was because I was having so much trouble academically and no one knew yeah. and I didn't tell anybody. Um, so I, at the same time, had gotten into singing and writing music and I decided this was the story that I told myself and everyone around me, I was dropping out of school so that I could pursue being a songwriter and being a performer. Um, I never actually really had quite like, I always really enjoyed writing music and I really did want to be a songwriter professionally, but performing wasn't really my first love because I obviously had a lot of social anxiety and a lot of stage fright. So that came with its own like um, problems. Uh, But it was a really good excuse to not admit that I was struggling, like Mm. to keep up at school. And also because I was very smart, my struggling was still higher than average. Like my grades were still above average. People aren't really looking for that. When they're looking for people who are having problems academically, they're looking for you to be, you know, failing, not yeah. failing to your own norm. Um, and so I don't think, I don't that's think a really it even. Point. Yeah. Yeah, and that, I think that's how you kind of go under the radar when when you're not really low in the fun, like functioning really low. It doesn't seem like there's a problem. Yeah. And you kind of second guess that there's a problem. Like yes. maybe maybe um, maybe I'm just not smart or maybe I'm lazy. Yeah, well we don't really have any systems in place to identify when somebody's not okay but they're still perfor- like performing within a normal range, do we? No, exactly. And I think that's why it's really important to hear stories from people who have very different experiences um, rather than relying on like one stereotype experience so like the eight-year-old boy who's running around bouncing off the walls is what we kind of think of when we think of ADHD for example Um, but we know that girls tend to internalize more than boys just in general they tend to do that because of societal expectations and, and norms that we grow up with and so when when we've got this idea of the stereotype and our experience doesn't fit with that, we go, well, I can't have that disorder or I'm not having that mm. problem. It must be something else. And that's why I think it's really important to share our stories because you never know who else is going to hear it and go, oh, that, that really connects with me. Maybe I should go and seek some help and investigate this a bit further. Yeah. Did it even hit your radar as, as a child and a teenager that there could be something undiagnosed or did you just think that I, you had to I work had- harder or...? Um, well, I didn't, I'd never worked hard. This was the problem because I was very smart. So in primary school, nothing was hard at school. Mm-hmm. It was super easy um, to the point that I would get bored with being in class. It wasn't until high school when things, they, they just, ordered, they do, they become harder because school, the, the, the concepts that you're learning are more difficult and they're more demanding on like your working memory and um, all the other cognitive things that go with it. As soon as it became hard and I had to, put effort in and, and have sustained attention, that's when things started to go south. But obviously I didn't know any of this back then. This is like, I don't know, 1997. Mm. So like even things on the, there wasn't as much widely available information with the internet and things like that that there are now. So mm. yeah. Can you actually tell us what, for those of us who aren't really well informed, what 
ADHD actually is? I know that's a yeah. bit to put you on the spot like that, but... Yeah, <laughs> um, I guess at the most basic level, um, ADHD is attention um, deficit hyperactivity disorder. And so you've got three kind of types. You've got your primarily inattentive subtype, primarily hyperactive, and then the combined. Um, and I personally have the combined type. Um, and then your hyperactivity and impulsivity can look like a variety of things. So the one that we automatically think of is like someone who has lots of energy, always running around, doing things, um, getting into mischief as a kid, that kind of thing. But hyperactivity can also be um, lots of racing thoughts, not being mm. able to shut your mind off um, and, and those impulsive traits. So um, impulsively buying things, um, anything that's going to kind of give you that dopamine hit and, um, you know, re release that, that tension that you have from having to do something impulsively, not being able oh, okay. to stop yourself. And then the inattentive is, um, you know, not being able to sustain attention, not taking information in. Mm. Um, like my husband, for example, I don't think he'd mind if I kind of shared this. He's been diagnosed with the inattentive type, so no hyperactivity. Um, but I, I, classic example the other day, um, I watched him put something in the microwave to eat with his dinner. And three days later, I went to use the microwave and pulled out what he put in there to eat with his dinner and he had not eaten it. He had totally forgotten that he'd even put it in there, wasn't missing it on his plate, like just that lack of attention to what you're yeah. doing. Um, yeah. Walking through the house up and down several times, thinking, like trying to find things, wondering what you were doing, what, what were you going to get, getting back to the other room, oh, that's what I was going to get, getting to the room that you went to, not nah, have no idea why I'm here, that kind of thing, which can be really, really frustrating. Yeah, okay, yeah, definitely. So there was a big gap between you leaving school and you getting diagnosed because that was that only happened earlier this year, right, that you got diagnosed with ADHD. Yeah, that's right. So yeah. what was happening in those years? Um, what, where did you go after you left school? Yeah, so after I left school, I did a few different jobs. So I worked in fast food for a bit while I was doing music, um, which doesn't, pay very well so <laughs> the jobs that I was doing to kind of survive um, I worked on a horse stud I worked for an insurance company and I was absolutely miserable doing all of these things um, they just they did not spark joy at all um, and then I actually met someone while I was working for the insurance company who had gone back to uni as a mature age student and she convinced me she's one of my very good friends now um, she convinced me to go to uni she was like, you're really smart. Why don't you go back? And I was like, oh, I, I, just, I just had so many bad emotions associated with high school and with learning and just um, the fact that I had, as all the adults around me said, like so much promise and then I just crashed out. It was kind of still very negative and I didn't really believe that I could do it. Anyway, I did it um, and I've I've taken a very long time to get to where I'm at, um, but yeah, I think I think for me, and this is kind of what I explained to my doctor when I was being diagnosed, the thing that got me through the last 15 years of being at uni and stuff, I think it's just been sheer grit, yeah. just, just that desire to get to an end point and just really struggling like just the struggle I, I I can't use a better word to describe what it's been like it's just been a constant struggle to mm, get through yeah. yeah so what is it that you're studying 
so I'm studying at the moment I'm doing a PhD in clinical psychology um, yep. So, yeah, so from 2007 through, I've kind of, um, I did my undergrad in psychology and my honours, and then I did a, a couple of grad certificates, as you do, because you get interested in something and you decide you're going to do it, and then you leave with the grad certificate because you're bored with that master's now, and then you go to another one, classic ADHD. Um, <laughs> so, two grad certificates in other things, and then I did a master's in criminal justice, um, which is was on a similar topic to what I'm looking at now. Uh yeah, and then at the moment, I'm kind of toying with the idea of doing a neuroscience master's after this PhD because I've become really interested in that. But I think now that I have an understanding of why I have these kind of fleeting, intense interests, I'm trying to be a bit more uh, measured in whether I actually enrol in something. So yep. once when I was in my undergrad, I actually, I was doing my undergrad full-time. I was working full-time crazy to start with and then I thought this would be a really good idea if I go and enroll in a health science degree as well and I'll do that full-time too mm. <laughs> madness madness <laughs> setting yourself up to fail <laughs> like. so now that's yeah that's giving you that extra kind of perspective where you go this is probably part of you know an ADHD thing do you really want to invest that much so it's just Exactly, exactly. It's just more information. Yeah, you're right. It's more information to kind of make a more measured decision um, and to, to understand why that's going on. And then mm. once you've got that why, you can kind of work backwards from there and go, okay, well, let's sit with this. Let's sit with this for like the, the rest of the PhD and see if you still have that interest. Yeah. And then maybe consider it rather than you know, spending six hours on the internet today looking up all the different degrees. I've done yeah. this. Looking up all the different degrees <laughs> in Australia and where you can do it. Can you do it online? Like, you don't need to do that right now. Don't waste your time. Like, put your energy somewhere where it's useful. Yeah. It's kind of like the diagnosis has given you the ability to kind of nurture yourself a little bit. Yeah. I Absolutely. Honestly, getting the diagnosis has been so positive for me. There, there were negatives to it as well, and I did have an adjustment period, but overwhelmingly positive. Mm. Yep. So can you talk about the lead up to you getting this um, diagnosis? What was the turning point where you went, something's wrong and I've got to chase out, you know, find out what's happening? Yeah, I think there were two distinct things going on at once. So without going into it too much, my husband was going through his own stuff and um, he was starting to get some answers for the things that he had been dealing with. And then that made, uh, at the same time, I had had a really busy year. I'd done, um, in the first semester, I was on my first clinical placement, which is like two and a half days a week seeing clients. I was doing two units as well, and I was working two days a week and my PhD. So I had a lot going on. And I was keeping all those balls in the air and getting everything done. Um, and then seeing my husband kind of getting his answers actually triggered me to feel really angry that I wasn't getting any help with anything um, and I was still kind of continuing and getting everything done and getting up in the morning and it, I don't think it was a very justified response but it, it was how it was what it was it was how I was feeling and um, just before Christmas I actually had like a full breakdown like I'd kept it together for the whole year I'd planned these two weeks off where I wasn't going to work on anything I was just going to have two weeks off and the day before I just I think my body just knew that time off was coming and it could just let like drop all those balls let them all fall and um 
yeah, I was driving home from an event one night and some music came on that I used to listen to a lot in year 11, the year that I left school and everything was very, very difficult for me. And it just triggered, it triggered all the feelings that I'd had. So I'd had actually already seen my GP a couple of days before saying that I was not feeling great. And I think I'd seen him the week before that as well. Um, so it was kind of like a slow burn into it. And then I had this panic attack um, that just brought back all these feelings of depression and anxiety from year 11. And um, somehow I managed to get my car home. And then I had to go and see the doctor like as soon as I could get into the next, that was like a Saturday. I went in on a Tuesday morning and we talked about things and he was like, you know, I really think that we should get you an assessment for ADHD. Um, and so he got me into the psychiatrist. I got in pretty quickly. I was very, very lucky. Um, very lucky that I'm in a position where one, I have psychiatrists available because I'm in, um, in a city and two, that I am, um, financially stable enough that I could afford to go straight in private. Not everyone has that option. Um, I certainly didn't have that previously definitely not when I was growing up and um yeah I, I was diagnosed on the day so he did yeah. a clinical clinical interview and an objective test which that was its own hilarious story of itself um and yeah he was like you know it, it's very obvious to me that that you have it based on my my past growing up and everything and then everything I've been going through but I think that the turning point for me was that um, the way I described it was that all my strategies had stopped working so I had so many strategies in place like I keep an online diary I keep things written down um, I'm heavily scheduled to the point that it's almost pathological and my friends joke about how much I schedule my, my life um, just because I, I just won't remember things um, I'll double book things I used to do that a lot when I was younger piss people off a lot um and all all the scaffolding that i'd had around to plan like to to kind of compensate for these deficits for want of a better word that wasn't working for me mm. i just wasn't getting anywhere on my phd um I, I just felt like everything was kind of falling apart and so i think it took that it took that crisis for me to go yes i need help there's only so much i can do to fix this myself yeah it sounds really exhausting like you it sounds like you did an amazing job of, you know, building what you call the scaffolding to, you know, to accommodate for an undiagnosed issue um, for so long. I can imagine it would be so exhausting having to, to live in a way where you're just building your life around these, these problems that you don't really know why they're there. Absolutely. It is. It is really exhausting. Yeah, yeah. So you said to me before, um, when we had a chat before we started recording, um, that once you got diagnosed with um, ADHD, it actually helped not only, you know, I don't know how the medi medication helps, but just um, the diagnosis alone has helped with your self-esteem. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think... Because I really questioned why I dropped out of school and why it was taking me so long to get through uni. Like I've been at uni for 15 years and I'm still doing my PhD now. That's a long time. Um, and then also uh, like all the other things that kind of feed into it with like social anxiety and always feeling 
different to the people around you and like you're kind of playing a part of fitting in with everyone so that no one kind of notices. I think to kind of be told by somebody, yes, your brain is different, it is functioning differently to a neurotypical person, that was really um, kind of gave me permission to be, it's given me permission to be myself. Like I feel like I can just be who I am and I don't have to make apologies and try to fit in. It, it, it feels like um, it's okay to be me. Mm. It, it, I don't have to be the other people's expectation. Yeah. yeah. So have you found since then has there, has, what does the treatment involve? Is it medication and is there a, um, an element of, uh, you know, like visiting a psychologist or anything like that? Or is it, or what does it involve once you actually do get diagnosed? Yeah, it'll depend. It'll depend on the person, on the individual and what they need. So for me personally, um, I'm not doing psychotherapy for ADHD, but I have a lot of, like I said before, like that scaffolding that I've already put in place and obviously studying clinical psychology. There were a lot of things that I could kind of do for myself that I'd learned over the years. Um, so for me, it's purely medication at the moment. Um, but I know that other people could also, you can get coaching, which is less around, so like your psychotherapy, um, uh, it, it's more like, scheduling like more like life skills so like scheduling your time um and, and having strategies to um help you to be more organized and and kind of you know uh work with what you've got um mm -hmm. to the best of your ability um so yeah it will depend on what the person needs and where they're kind of at and also um how much your adhd is affecting your day-to-day -day. like it might be affecting you in one area but but not so much another area and that kind of thing but i mean in my experience i think that for me it's affected everything like i i had no idea even as a clinical psych trainee i had no idea how much adhd could affect your relationship and in hindsight it's heavily affected all of my relationships including my current one um so just just that psychoeducation and learning about what the disorder actually is, even just that can be so helpful because you're like, oh, that's what that is. That's why I do that. Oh, okay, well, I can put this in place to fix that or whatever. Mm. Does the medication help much? Does it help you kind of breathe out again and, and not have to worry about all of that quite as much or is it still the same? It just means it's more effective than it would have been. Um, Again, I think medication is highly individual. It depends on what type of medication you're on, what your dose is, how long you've been on it, um, and what your symptoms are. For me personally, I've seen a huge improvement in my ability to focus has been the main thing. So for me, one of the big problems I had was um, focusing on something, especially something that I'm finding boring or difficult. So statistics, um, difficult concepts, reading long passages of really, I don't know, for want of a better word, wankily written psychology papers yeah. from the 70s, stuff like that. <laughs> um, I could not focus for more than like 30 seconds at a time, not even joking. And I wasn't just distracted by um, sensory things. So people walking past, I'd always turn to look. Um, sounds, especially sounds, uh, but also just my own thoughts. So like something will pop into my head, like, you know, uh, 
uh, where do pineapples come from? Oh, I bet I have to look this up right now. <laughs> Open up yeah. a tab on Google. Where do pineapples come from? I ended it down on this Google search, that kind of thing. Um, but the medication has really helped with that. So it's not perfect, um, but I can focus for solid chunks of time. Like I could be sitting at my desk for two hours working on something now, whereas that really only happened in the past when I was kind of in a hyper-focus zone. And that's usually mm -hmm. what I'm really interested in something and unfortunately study doesn't work that way you, you don't always get to just look at things that you're interested in sometimes you have to read stuff that you're not really that interested in so um with regard to like the hyper activity i don't really think it's had that much of an effect um but the hyperactivity doesn't really bother me as much as like the lack of focus was really the thing that was causing me a lot of pain yeah <laughs> so. absolutely okay so one other thing that we were going to to touch on that's been a big um, a big factor in your life um, is that you also had an eating disorder. How old were you when when that was kind of when you kind of noticed that that was an issue in your life? I think I was just thinking about this the other day. Actually, the the earliest memories I have of being aware that I didn't want to be fat and that I didn't enjoy the feeling of food in my stomach was when I was eight mm. and I started throwing my lunch out because obviously at home you don't have any control so at school I'd just chuck my lunch straight in the bin and I started losing weight I was already a very small child um, but I started losing weight quite rapidly and my parents actually came down and spied on me <laughs> and watched me throwing my lunch in the bin. And um, the, probably not the best thing for them to have done in hindsight, but again, 90s, what did anyone know? My dad came down and sat with me um, at school to make sure I ate my lunch. And my social anxiety was already like mm. in full swing by that point. That was so embarrassing for me. I was already a loser who had no friends. Um, and so the compromise was that I would start eating my lunch to avoid that, mm. but I didn't, I didn't want to be eating my lunch. So yeah. those thoughts were already there. Like it was, it was well and truly there. Um, and then when I was nine, so I moved to a new town, a new school the next year. Um, I started losing more weight. It was kind of commented on through my family that I was really skinny and I looked really sick and, you know, I was definitely underweight at that point. Um, and then it kind of, kind of was on and off from, from there. Um, yeah, I think one of the things that I didn't really connect until getting my diagnosis with ADHD was the, the binge eating side of things. So, um, that impulse the impulse to eat really has been controlled by my medication so i really don't have any kind of episodes of binge eating anymore um so i think that like i did actually start looking into it there is quite a bit of research around um, the association between binge eating and bulimia um and adhd that kind oh, of right. yeah shared pathway with that lack of impulse control so yeah okay so how how long was that um a big factor in your life um you know i imagine it's hard enough dealing with adhd especially undiagnosed adhd but at the same time living with an eating disorder um did you ever get the eating disorder diagnosed or is that just something that you knew about but didn't really go and see anyone about i've never had an official diagnosis for my eating disorder but i did have some psychotherapy for it yeah um 
and there were clear times where my weight recorded weight was I would have I, I would fit the diagnostic criteria for being anorexic yeah um and then the the uh, I think the the worst period it, it's kind of waxed and waned it's been on and off through my entire life but eating disorders run in my family um but when I was in my late 20s I got to the point where I was so into health and fitness that like it, it was the orthorexia was ridiculous I wouldn't eat more than 30 grams of cheese in a day like I'd weigh it everything was weighed within an inch of its life um, I'd overestimate all my calories that I wrote down underestimate all of my exercise and I think that the point where it was at its craziest was I was trying to get my net calories to zero every day so I'd eat a thousand calories I'd try to burn off 1100 mm. which is absolute madness like and, mm. and I knew this I knew that this was not logical but I also really wanted to be hitting that number so it's, it's such a strange like um a strange position to be in where you know one thing but you also want something else and, and they just kind of clash into each other um yeah yeah and and it just it dominated my life like i would go to parties and take my own box of salad to eat like that that doesn't make you friends with anybody <laughs> um i wouldn't go out for food um if i was going out for like a work event in the evening and there was going to be alcohol i would not eat all day and then i wouldn't eat when i got there i'd just drink the alcohol because i knew that that would kind of bump me up to my thousand calories which is way too few calories let's just yep. put that straight out there that's yeah. insane um i was tiny like i i weighed 50 kilos and i was convinced like uh, convinced that i still needed to lose more weight and i've gone through periods of time where i've been like that and i think now i'm at a point where i'm not happy with what i look like but i know now very clearly that no matter how small i am I will always think that I'm too big. Mm. But that's yeah. just kind of been been my pattern. Um, yeah, okay. So there's yeah. a, sort of like an element of self-awareness that you've developed with your eating disorder as well. Like it still hasn't, it's like it's kind of still a little bit in your life, but just like how you're overseeing your ADHD and being kind to yourself from that, it looks like you're overseeing the eating issues and being kind to yourself about that as well. Yeah, I think that that did come through psychotherapy. That came from working with a counsellor and changing a lot of cognitions. So um, it, 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 it really does feel like that to me. Like I don't feel like I've fully recovered in the sense yeah. of what recovery should be, but my cognitions have changed to the point that I don't feel like I would ever go back to where I was. Yeah. Um, and so I kind of look at it as I manage it. I manage it to the best of my ability and I have kind of strategies in place to help me do that. So when I feel like I'm missing my eating disorder too much or I really want, I really, really want to go back to things, I tell my husband so that he's aware, so that he can make sure I'm not skipping meals, make sure I'm not halving my meals, like that kind of thing. Um, whereas in the past, even while I've been with him, I just wouldn't tell anyone anything because you don't want them, you don't want them to to step in and kind of um, put things into place because then that kind of goes against what you try to achieve. So it's kind of like, I'm kind of working against myself, but in a healthy way, it's kind of like being my own, you know, my own, um, kind of being my own psychologist in a way, like, you know, this is what's good for you. You need to do this, not this thing. 
Yeah, so. okay. It's like you've just built steps around it to, to kind of manage everything before it becomes an issue again. Yeah. And I, yeah, it, it's funny because I, I think my life would be a lot better if I was fully over over it. Yep. Um, but life is a journey and you just keep trying to, you know, learn more things as you go and do a little bit better tomorrow than you did the day before and I think that's kind of where I'm at at the moment yeah yeah I'm definitely going to have to have a read about what you said about how there's the link between a potential link between the ADHD and the eating disorder thing I think that's super interesting is that something that you have been learning about yourself as part of your course or did you hear that elsewhere um I don't remember doing it in my course but I um basically just did a quick lit review to have a look at because if you have a look at um a, a lot of the uh websites about adhd they kind of talk about binge eating being one of those impulsive behaviors and so yep. i just kind of looked up the literature ah, to yes. see what studies have been done so yep. yeah yep. yeah okay it's all very all very interesting do you know what um when you when you look back can you see anything that at eight years old can you see what triggers and maintains an eating disorder or is that link sort of unclear? I mean, I know it's different for everyone, but I just mean in your particular yeah, situation. In my situation, I think the environment that I was in played a big role. Um, and this is not to speak ill of anyone in my, my family. It's not what I mean by this at all, but um, my extended family on my mum's side is very or at least they were very health conscious, very weight conscious and not afraid to kind of talk about each other's weight, um, not necessarily in a positive way. And I, I think I can't remember a time growing up where I didn't know what calories were. Like my mum calorie counted. She was very fit. She was very thin. Um, and so I, it was just always part of my awareness that... Yeah that this was important and this was something that people would judge you on. And I think that that is so ingrained in me that that has been the hardest thing for me to work through, that it's, it's that having your self-worth tied up with, you know, how you're judging yourself and how you're perceiving other people to be judging you. That's what I was kind of talking about with changing those cognitions. For me, it was a big, and this was kind of, um, it helped with my social anxiety as well. It was that... Um, doing something that we would call like a downward arrowing technique where we ask so what so um what's the worst thing if your 10 kilos heavier today what's the worst thing or well, people think i'm fat what's the worst thing about that ebony uh well um then people think i'm ugly what's the worst thing about that well then people won't like me what's the worst thing about that uh no one likes me and you get kind of down to the bottom so kind of doing that and then going okay well so what if no one likes you who cares carry on like how does that it doesn't it doesn't matter like it's it's one it's not true and two it never was who cares carry on with your day and so doing that shift like actively having to tell myself stuff like that for like a couple of years really changed that but I think that still kind of sits it, it still sits deep in you because it's it's around you from like such a young age and it wasn't like I can remember distinct occasions where people in my extended family commented on my weight when I was, I was small. Like I was, 
I wasn't overweight. Let's just put mm. it that way. Yep. And like, so I remember when I was 14, I was wearing a pair of size seven jeans and I saw my Nana after not seeing her for a while. And she um, greeted me with, oh, hey, Ed, um, you've put on a bit of weight. No one likes a fat pop star you know, that kind of thing. Mm. And then there was another time when I was 13 after I'd put on some weight from being very, very, very thin, like unhealthily thin, one of my uncles greeted me at the door and said, oh, you've put on weight, but in a positive way. But what I heard was, oh, great, everyone's noticing that I've put on weight. Yeah, um, yeah. and so just those kinds of comments that I think nowadays we're a lot more aware that those comments shape the way we think about ourselves and other people. I don't think that we were societally as aware back then. So it's kind of, you, you, I don't think you can judge this by today's standards because we have we have shifted in a more positive direction when it comes to that stuff. Mm. Um, yeah, but I think that for, for people like around my age and older, I think it's probably played a huge role. Yeah, we're definitely more aware now. We're pro I'm lucky I have a son and I'm not saying eating issues don't, don't happen with boys but they're they're less common but um you know as parent I'm sure if I had a daughter I would have stuffed up and said the wrong thing that I think sometimes you've got to take some accountability as the individual in how you're taking comments because yep. it's, it goes both ways it's not just what someone else is saying it's how you're taking it as well yep. and so like the comment by my uncle he meant that in a positive way yeah. like I knew that I knew that at the time he was saying you look healthy like you look like you should but I took it a different way and so I, I yeah I really think that it's kind of it's it's not black and white there's a lot of no it's nuance not. it's around really it. difficult I remember yeah. when I was a teenager when I started dieting and that was really just my own thing like my mum never dieted never talked about weight she was quite a healthy size but it wasn't it wasn't something that we discussed but I mean I know that my dad would speak badly about women who didn't look the way that he thought that they should look so I think I probably internalized that a little bit but then also just looking at the tv and magazines and and things like that there's a lot of messages that we're supposed to look a certain way and if we don't look that way we're not okay but I can yeah I can remember my mother saying to me once when I was on some stupid extreme extreme diet um she said oh, I'm a bit worried about you and that's all she said she said you've lost a lot of weight I'm a bit worried and and I remember all I thought was yes I'm on track. <laughs> like yeah. somebody's noticed I'm doing a great job. So I just, it's, it's difficult because that's what I mean about, about it being difficult to know what to say. Because if you're in a really messy headspace, you can take, you can take it however you want. Do you know what I mean? And exactly. I know that's what I did. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's what can make it difficult for people who are trying to help you as well. Like I remember um, this was like 10 years ago, I was 49 kilos, which is I'm 163 centimetres tall for anyone who wants to figure out how small that is. And when you, when I look at the photos now, clearly, clearly gaunt and just not looking good. And um, one of my friends, the one who um, uh, got me to go to uni, actually, she messaged me because I was living in a different town. She messaged me and she was like, you know, uh, you look a bit, you look a bit anorexic. You, I think you need some help. And I was, I don't think I ever even replied to her. Um, I was so angry. So angry. I was like, how, 
dare you judge me about what I look like? I run every day and I eat so healthy. Like, who are these people to be judging me? And there's, there were other people after that who also like tried to help. And I did not want a bar of it. And so I think that makes it really hard for people when they're like, they can clearly see that you're struggling but it's very difficult to reach someone when they're in that, that mind space. And I think going back to that comment about um, the context that we're in with like societally, it, it shifts all the time. So like I grew up in the nineties, everyone in the nineties was like celebrities were skinny. Like mm. some, some, many of them were Kate anorexic Moss or time, very underweight. Exactly. Kate Moss was who I just, I wanted to be like Kate Moss. And unfortunately, I'm quite curvy. Like even if I'm really fit and slim, I'm a very curvy girl. I've got a butt. It's, I've got thighs. They rub together. They, they, it's, that's just how it is. It was never going to happen for me. So that was kind of the standard that we were all aiming for at that time. But now the, the beauty standard has completely shifted to something that is just as extreme and just as unrealistic um, that, that people, are, girls are trying to get now with like, um, you know, these BBLs and procedures. And I'm not saying that procedures are a bad thing or a good thing. I don't care one way or the other, but they're not like a natural body shape that a 16 year old yeah. is probably going to be able to have. And now, so that they've got this different standard that they're trying to aim for. So I think, I don't think that's really going away anytime in a hurry. No. What does BBL stand for? Is it like a Brazilian butt lift or something? Oh, they okay. they suck all the fat out of your stomach and then yep. they put it into your thighs. Yep, yep. Yeah. So one thing I've noticed is even with the overweight, the plus size models, um, they only ever pick plus size models who still have the hourglass shape. Like they're not, yeah. you yep. know, they're it's, a, it's still a, yeah, it's still, still a, got like a, a big boobs, big butt, but you still got to have a tiny waist. And this, it's yeah. like, if I put on, if I got as big as that model who looks amazing, if I got as big as her, I'd look like Jabba the Hutt. <laughs> That's yeah. my body shape. I'd lose my waist straight away and it goes straight into the middle, you know, so I don't yeah. know. But it's definitely a nice thing getting older and, and becoming more accepting of yourself. I don't know if you feel that it's also comes with age. Um, I think it does, but I think also for me, I can't kind of discount the, the role that counsellors and psychologists have played for me. Yeah. Um, I, I really wish that I had seen a, a mental health professional when I was a teenager, when I was a young adult. Um, I tried a couple of times at uni when I first started and hated it. I just wasn't in a, a space where I was ready to hear anything. And then also that kind of taking deliberate time to be introspective and reflect and kind of take a good look at yourself and not be afraid to look at the bits that you don't like. Um, and I think for me, that was kind of, that was kind of a turning point for me. I'd say in my early thirties where I realized that a lot of the things that I didn't like about other people were actually things that I didn't like about myself. Um, and, and so being able to do that, you can kind of like take a step back and go, oh, okay, I, I, I see what's going on here. Mm -hmm. I, I, can, I can do something about this. Yeah. yeah. So what advice would you give to people who are dealing with um, eating disorders or think that they may have ADHD? Like where, where would you advise them to, to start? I think the first step would be to go to your GP. Um, 
preferably if you have a GP that you've got a good relationship with and that you've, you know, you've seen them a few times or whatever. Um, if you don't, then try to find a GP that you connect with and that you think that they're listening to you. If you go to one and you don't feel like they heard you, they heard your story, go to another one um, because you'll need to see a GP to get a mental health care plan um, and to get your referrals anyway. Um, I also think like we talk about a lot of negatives from social media, but there could be some good things from that as well. So following accounts, this is something else that I did actually, I switched up my social media so that I was following accounts of people who I wouldn't have naturally been drawn to. So I put a bunch of plus size models into my feed so that I was exposed to imagery that was different to just different. I just wanted to see different things. I wanted to not have this heavily curated, um, single-minded idea of something. I wanted to see a variety. So I had plus size models. I had eating disorder recovery, um, survive, like eating disorder recovery survivors. I had um, uh, ambassadors for eating disorders, like the Butterfly Foundation and stuff like that in my feed. Um, dietitians was another big one, following lots of dietitians because they give you, you know, um, a completely different view of food because it's not about the aesthetics all the time. It's about nutrition. So you're just getting different bits of information that you can kind of pull together rather than this, this one idea. And then I really highly recommend um, for eating disorders, going to an eating disorder clinic, um, working with specialist, a specialist team that would probably be made up of, you know, clinical psychologists, dietitians, um, psychiatrists, like a, uh, a multidisciplinary team. And for ADHD, I think if you're really struggling and you've got this kind of just constant grind and struggle, um, going to your doctor and asking for a referral to a psychologist, uh, to a psychiatrist to, to be assessed for it, you don't really have anything to lose. If you mm. go and have the assessment done and they say you don't have it, you've maybe lost some money going there. Um, but the, the odds are that you could get a diagnosis and then you could get the help that you need. So, yeah, yeah I, I think that... Having that knowledge, you can start to implement a plan and... Exactly, yeah. 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 So one thing I, I forgot that I wanted to talk to you about was... Um, now, while you're managing your ADHD fairly well, especially considering that you were only diagnosed in January, plus your, um, you know, I don't know if you'd call it managing your eating disorder. If you can, I, I know you said it's still kind of there. Is that, am I speaking correctly if I said it like that? Or, um, would... yeah, I think I think it is still kind of there i wouldn't say i have an eating disorder right now yeah. I, I don't believe that i have one um but there are you know it's it's kind of like some things can be triggers that would just be triggering for anybody um so like i still struggle at the moment to go back to dance classes so i spent quite a while doing ballet um even on the weekend i went to a ballet class and i was objectively the biggest person in the class um I, my body doesn't move the way it used to also because I'm older now and I have other injuries and stuff. And that was really quite sad for me. Like I, I, I found that quite difficult. Um, mm. But that I feel like some of those things can just happen 
to anybody. Like yeah. I, I've, I've spoken to quite a few dancers who are older, like older than me, and they struggle with that, not being able to move the way they used to and stuff like that. So it's kind of like, you know, what's the eating disorder and what's just normal um, disappointment yeah. or normal yes. struggle? So, yeah, yeah. Yep, I get yeah. what you're saying. But then I know now that you're doing the, um, you're training for a half marathon, that you kind of occasionally get little comments that can be a bit, um, I don't know if you'd call them offensive, but um, for some people they'd be triggering. Um, just advice like, oh, you know that um, running isn't going to help you lose weight, don't you? And things like that. Yeah, I've definitely had that. I've had quite a few people um, messaging me and, you know, asking why am I running when I should be lifting weights or, mm. um, you know, uh, someone messaged me and said that I don't look like a runner. Um, what does a runner look like? To me, a runner looks like someone who's running. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, um, yeah, so I think I think a lot of the time people's comments come with the best of intentions, like they're, they're, they're trying to help um but it's not always helpful and again i will go back to that um you kind of have to take some accountability with how you're going to take people's comments that's probably the biggest thing that has changed for me in the last couple of years i kind of choose how i want to respond to what someone says rather than reacting and i'm naturally a very reactive person um which can also be part of adhd so i'm told so I think, yeah, getting older, learning how to kind of manage your emotions and choose what you're going to respond to, what, what's worth the energy, what isn't. And then also like asking yourself, oh, what was this person's intention? Were they trying to upset me? Yeah, I highly doubt it. They're one of my friends. I really doubt they were trying to upset me. So, you know, let's just let this go kind of let's thing. Let's just assume the best here because it's better for my headspace. Yeah. And I think generally just assuming the best of people is kind of good for everyone. Like, yep. it's good for you, it's good for the other person, it's good for everyone around you, so, yeah. yeah. Well, I was listening to a podcast the other day about a book called Humankind. Have you read that? No, what's that about? Well, it's on my, on my list, but I haven't, I haven't read it yet. But he was talking about that's basically what it sounds like his, his book is about, that, um, that despite the way that we're taught that people are bad and that they're untrustworthy and that we need these systems in place because everyone's inherently bad, which I think kind of comes a little bit from religion as well, but, you know, I, I don't want to go too much into that. Um, but um, he said, actually, if you study it, people are basically pretty good. Like there are some outliers, but, but we're basically pretty good. And he talks about how, how much healthier it is to assume the best in everyone um, because not only is it going to make you feel better, um, when you assume the best, like I could read this as this person's being an absolute arsehole or I could read it like they're having a bad day and they probably don't even quite realise that that sounded rude or, or whatever and that's better for you. But he said it's also better in how you, when you respond, even if they were being an arsehole, when you respond in a way that you assume the best, you're actually opening up an opportunity for them to change. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think like the flip side of that is when you assume that that person who was rude to you is doing it because they're or you perceive that someone was being rude and you perceive that they were doing it because they either don't like you or they're a horrible person so then you respond in a way that makes you not look your best and you're not feeling your best and then everyone that you interact with for however long after that 
you're not being very nice to. And then that kind of bumps onto that next person. Like, oh, Ebony was such a cow to me this morning. God, and why it feeds she like on that? it, doesn't it? Like there's proof. It, it, oh, absolutely. there's proof this person is an asshole. <laughs> absolutely. And then you're kind of looking for, especially if it's like a colleague or someone that you see every day, you're kind of looking for the evidence to prove that they're like that yep. instead of like just going, oh, they're having a bad day, you know, or... Maybe, maybe, maybe they weren't having a bad day. Maybe you're having a bad day yeah. and you took it the wrong way. So, well, yeah, sometimes no, I it's totally even, agree. Sometimes I think the best that you can reach it for sometimes is, okay, this person, I actually think this person is a bit of an asshole, but I'm willing to see that sometimes they can have some good qualities. For me, when I have some people in my life that I really don't like, I find that, that you know, that's the highest I can reach and I kind of think that's okay. That I'm That's open the highest to you being, I can reach too. Yeah. <laughs> and I only got there recently. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm open to you being okay. I don't want to hate you all the time. Like you're not my per you're not my human, but I'm not gonna I'm I'm willing to see some good in you. Do you know what I mean? Like Yeah, and, and, and that person who isn't your person, they might be the right person for someone else for different reasons. Um I think being able to kind of accept that different like people are good for different people for different reasons is actually really helpful yeah. um yeah yeah that that's that's something that i've only really become better at in the last few years i think i think i think studying psychology kind of helps with that studying clinical psychology kind of like you spend all your time practicing being non-judgmental and really trying to understand where where people are coming from like people don't do things for no reason people do things for for a reason so what is that reason just kind of being a bit more open-minded about why people do things is actually really helpful for you as well mm, mm. and you can never really know the whole big picture and often the way that they're treating other people i mean boundaries are still important of course but often the way that they're behaving has nothing to do with you at all yep absolutely um, and anyway. you'll never know you'll never know someone's full story either unless they want you to that's right. Like we assume we know about people because we assume they're telling us everything about themselves, but we're, we're not. We're all, we all have things that are just for us. Yeah. Okay. So thank you so much for that. Um, I'm going to ask you some quick questions now, just some getting to know you type questions. Do you have a favourite book? I do have a favourite book. My favourite book, my nana gave it to me when I was eight, I think. Um, Anna Green Gables. Have you okay. read that book? I have, but it was so long ago that I can't remember anything about it. I've read it so many times. I love that book. Okay. I might have to read it again. I'm writing it down. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how do you make space for joy? Do you uh, make space for joy? I, I was just going to say, I'm really not good at this. Like, <laughs> I'm not a good example of making space for joy. Um, but at the moment, I'm just trying to reframe the things that I already do. So I, I already you know, I already exercise um, and that kind of thing. Instead of it being a task, like it's a task that I have to do today, I kind of tell myself, I get to go for a run today. I get to do something that I like and kind of just reframing something that I would already be doing into something that's joyful rather than another thing that has to get done. Yeah, that makes sense. It's probably, probably important. Um, I need to try and do that as well. Um, what's something that very few people know about you? <laughs> That's a really hard question because I'm such an open book about things and I'm quite willing to talk about a lot of things that people generally wouldn't. Um, uh, 
I can't, this is a bit morbid, but I can't remember not knowing what death is because my sister passed away when I was just before I turned three. Um, so when she was born, she, she didn't make it. So I held her. And so I think like, I've always had like, I've always known what the concept of death is. Mm. Um, and I think that's kind of shaped a lot of, <laughs> a lot of who I am as well. So. Was it yeah. something that you was quite scared of when you were young or was it just an awareness of it? No. And that's the thing. I think, I think that having it in my life from such a young age, it wasn't scary. Although having said that, when my brother was born a year later, they had to like poke him and make him cry because when they were trying to introduce me to him, I was like, nope, he's dead. And then just trying to like walk off. Like matter of fact, no, nah, he's dead. He's dead. It's fine. Mum's like, no, look, he's crying. He's alive. Oh, okay. I have a brother. So, wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Gosh. Um, so what's the most important, uh, life lesson for you so far? I think that most of the time it's far more important to listen than it is to speak. Mm. And I think that this is pretty rich coming for someone who's just rambled their whole way through like an hour of like talking a lot, but I think listening not only helps the person that you're interacting with, but it also helps you, you learn more. Um, and if you're trying to, if, especially if you're speaking to someone where you disagree on something, if you both just shout at each other about your own opinion, no one's going to learn anything. But if you actually sit and have a conversation where one person says something and then you listen and then you say something and they listen, you can actually kind of learn more about where the other person's coming from. And then you might actually reshape your ideas on something yeah you may not you may not but I think and I, I, I don't know it's just a nicer way to get through life and then especially with things that um that like so for me a lot of like black lives matter um and um the fat positive community and communities that I'm not a part of just listening to other people's stories and what their experience is like and then how I can be an, an ally um, to help those people. How can you be an ally if you don't even know what the, the situation is? And, you know, I think speaking about white people, white people have had the floor for so long. No, we don't, we don't need to hear. We don't need to hear more from us. <laughs> like, yeah. we, we, have, we have an over-representation of voice. Like, just, just giving a, a voice to people who don't have it, I think that that's really important. And I just, I find great joy in just listening to other people's stories. I just love hearing what, what other people think, um, what they've been through. And I, I just, I think it's very enriching. Yep, yep. Something that Bre Brene Brown talks about a lot is that people, you know, you've got to get close to people, even if they're, instead of putting that divide in and going, you're not like me, I don't want you in my circle or whatever, just being willing to to be open to listening to to other people yeah but it's so hard in real life like um you know if if i'm talking to someone who's quite racist for example it's just hard not to i don't know i feel like what brene is teaching that the only way that it's possible for people to grow and change is when we actually are open to not shutting down to this person do you know what i mean but it's yes. really hard when you're like, I freaking hate you. <laughs> yeah, it is. And I, I'll be honest, that racism is one that I really struggle with. Um, it's really hard for me to kind of keep 
mm, listening and then trying to kind of share a yes. different viewpoint or kind of like trying to find a, a little bit of wiggle room in to find kind of where where is that belief coming from and and how can we kind of work on shifting that belief yeah. um it, it is it is very difficult um but then i think you know people probably find it difficult talking to people like us who are you know very liberal and um oh, yeah. or, or for for everyone's rights i know i've spoken to people who are, they just can't understand um when i kind of explain that gender is a construct especially not to be ageist but a lot of the older people that i speak with trying to explain that gender is a construct sex is biological and that there yeah. is more than two sexes in nature and it just it's very it's very hard um and to their credit they they are actually really willing to listen if you are willing to talk in a way that isn't attacking and judgmental yeah. and i think that i find that personally quite difficult because being a very reactive and emotional person my emotions kind of get me when i'm talking about um topics that fire me up and and things <laughs> things like that fire me up so yeah. that's been something that i've had to really work on but i think uh, I think it's just a nicer way to live your life. It's not possible to do all the time. I don't think it's possible to do anything 24-7. But just trying to have that in mind that, you know, um, just just listening mm. and, and, and trying, trying to understand. Yeah, absolutely. What lesson do you think that you're currently learning in your life? Hmm. I think I'm trying to be more present at the moment, like even even in little ways. Like I used to go running as an escape, to escape my body, to escape my thoughts, to escape my feelings was a big one. And I would just zone the hell out while I was running. Um, whereas at the moment I'm running and I'm trying to pay attention to how it's feeling in my body and... Um, the sounds around me. I don't run with music anymore. I, I, no headphones, which I, this is, this is very new for me and I never thought I'd be able to do it. I'd be out for like three hours just looking at nature and taking in all the sensory um, information. And it's a very different way of living and it's very difficult for me, um, especially with the ADHD. Like it's so hard for me to be present. I'm so future focused. Um, but just trying to enjoy the process as much as the, the goal, not just rushing towards goals all the time. Yep, absolutely. Mm. Mm, I can definitely relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for the chat, Ebony. I really appreciate it. That's good. I hope I didn't ramble too much. I, I, my head is always so full of like 1,000 thoughts at any given time that it's so hard for me to kind of stay on topic. So I really tried. I tried. <laughs> no, you didn't ramble. <laughs> All right. Thank you for the chat. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much.